Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. On this episode, I'm joined by my conservative colleague, Michael Chong. He was first elected in 2004, and we'll talk about his independent streak. We'll talk about how he resigned from cabinet in 2006 and his experience in the leadership race in 2017. I also wanted to note, while we recorded this before another conservative MP, Derek Sloan, made incredibly bigoted remarks about Dr. Theresa Tam, Michael Chong was quick to distance himself from those comments, and he wrote, As a conservative, I want to thank Dr. Tam for her tireless efforts on behalf of Canadians. While I might not agree with every decision she's made, I have no doubt about her loyalty to Canada. We're in this together, and each one of us is doing their best. Dr. Theresa Tam, like my father, immigrated from Hong Kong to Canada to make this her home and native land. Like my father, she became a doctor and made it her life's work to save lives and help her fellow citizens. We need more Canadians like Dr. Tam. With that, here's Michael. Michael, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Great to be here. You've been a vocal advocate for reforming Parliament, making the executive more accountable to Parliament in a number of different ways over the years. And now we face this situation today where we're looking at a virtual Parliament and changes out of necessity. In your view, what are the changes that should be made going forward to improve Parliament? Well, broadly speaking, I think we need to strengthen the role of the individually elected member of Parliament. You know, in Canada, we don't elect governments. We elect a legislature of 338 MPs. And out of that, a government is appointed by the governor general. And so I think because we don't directly elect our prime minister, don't directly elect our governments, it's really important that, that, that the government, the prime minister and cabinet are accountable back to the legislature. And I think strengthening the role of MPs to hold the government accountable is really, really important. Open to a virtual parliament, but I think that in Canada, we have two sets of unique challenges in making that happen. Unlike the UK, we are a vast geography with lots of rural and remote hinterlands where there is no broadband access and no reliable internet access. So that's one challenge. I think the second challenge is that unlike the UK, most MPs are back home in their ridings and they go back every weekend. And so trying to remotely access Parliament in Ottawa through a virtual study is more difficult. I think it's really important that we don't create a two-tier type of membership in the House of Commons where some MPs you know, have access to the House because they have access to the to broadband and others don't. So that's a good point. I, I worry the other way around that when I see the reduced quorum, you've been able to go back to Ottawa? I have, yeah. I've not been in a position where I've been part of that group of 14, 15 Liberal MPs to go back. And I certainly feel like my community's representation of my privilege is affected as a result, where as a matter of physical distancing, we shouldn't have 338 MPs. You're right to identify the broadband challenge, but on the flip side, if without some hybrid solution, we can't all go back and, and therefore our privilege is, is to some degree limited. Yeah, and, and, the, and the privileges, in other words, the rights of your constituents are affected. The right of their, the right that they have to their representation through you on the floor of the House of Commons. So I agree with you. And so I've been in within my own caucus been calling on our leadership not to make the decision about which of the 11 Conservative MPs should go to Ottawa, that there should be some process independent of the leadership of the party in determining who gets to sit on the floor of the House of Commons during this pandemic. Because I don't think you want to have the leadership deciding who gets to sit in the House of Commons and creating this kind of two-tier membership where some members have more rights than others. Which is a really important point because my first question was about parliamentary reform, but in fact, 
so much of the conversation should be focused on reforming party structures and party structures as they interact with parliamentary structures. For most of our hundreds of years of parliamentary history in this country, the first legislature was established in 1758 in the city of Halifax. For hundreds of years, the primary rights holder was the individually elected member of parliament. Well, that's changed in the last 50 years, and increasingly recognized parties in the House of Commons are displacing individual MPs as the rights holders, as the primary organizing principle. And I think that's where a lot of the challenges today come from, uh, challenges in ensuring the government's held accountable, challenges within the parties, and, and balance between uh, balance of power between individual MPs and the party leadership. So I think if you're going to look at reforms, it has to focus on that power dynamic between the caucus leadership, the party leadership, and the individual members of parliament in those caucuses. You introduced the Reform Act, and I've got a few questions about that that I want to get to, but are there changes sitting here today, rule changes that we could make that would improve that dynamic? You know, I think the Reform Act was a small step in the right direction. Um, It was significantly watered down from what it was originally intended to do, Um, but I do think it's moved the needle in the right direction. And a good example of that is that my colleague, Scott Reed, uh, the MP, Conservative MP from Eastern Ontario, said that publicly. He said he was able to uh, challenge and assert the right of individual MPs to attend the House of Commons and make sure that we didn't pass another unanimous consent motion in March that would have passed all these bills sight unseen because uh, some provisions of the Reform Act had been adopted by our caucus. So in the Conservative caucus, for example, party leader no longer has the authority to expel a, an MP from caucus. That decision is exclusively one for the entire caucus on a secret ballot vote. And Scott Reed said publicly that because of that, he felt empowered to you know, stand up for the rights of individual members, even if that wasn't entirely in sync with the party leadership. The decision for who speaks in the House, those are dictated today by the leadership in our respective parties, giving more of that power to the speaker was one of the pieces in our platform that I think resets that relationship to to some extent, to some small extent maybe. Are are there other rule changes like that 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 you would be in favor of? Just on that rule change, I think that's a great proposal. I'm hopeful that at some point uh, the House will adopt those changes that were proposed in the Liberal platform. I think we should get rid of the lists and restore the Speaker's right of recognition. The Speaker has essentially lost the right of recognition in the House of Commons for almost all of the proceedings. That's now determined as through the party list system, where you have to get on uh, the party list through the House Leader or Whip's office, or alternatively through the Cabinet Minister or Shadow uh, Minister's offices. And often they pick favorites about who can be on the list and who isn't on the list. And I don't think that's right. I think every member should have the right uh, to be recognized on the floor of the House and speak on behalf of their constituents. So I think that's a great thing, a proposal. Other ideas? I think one of the big, low-hanging pieces of fruit is to make standing committees of the House of Commons, of which there are some two dozen standing committees, independent of party leader power. And so that starts, I think, by removing the party leader's power through the whips and House leaders to appoint members to committee. I think committees should be made up of elected MPs uh, who are elected by their colleagues in caucus on a secret ballot vote. That change they implemented in the UK Parliament about a decade ago, and it seems to have worked very, very well. I also think chairs of committees 
should also be elected on a secret ballot vote by members of committee at the very first committee meeting rather than being appointed by either the PMO or, or the leader of the official opposition. They're elected today in theory, I suppose. Um, but uh, but there is behind the scenes conversations to ensure that those elections go very smoothly. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting, former Prime Minister Paul Martin, when he became Prime Minister, when he was appointed Prime Minister, campaigned on addressing the democratic deficit. And one of the changes he brought in was to allow for the secret ballot election of committee chairs. But there was a loophole in that changed standing order. In order to nominate somebody for the position of chair, it was a public nomination. And so the whips now can control who gets nominated. The way around that is simply to eliminate the nomination of MPs at that first committee meeting for committee chair and simply go to a single preferential ballot where if it's a liberal chair, all liberal members are on that ballot. It's a single preferential ballot. Everybody votes on that secret preferential ballot. And one of the liberal members on that committee becomes the chair. And there's no way for the whips or house leaders to gain that system. I always thought there are these more technical rule changes that could potentially help. And I think empowering committees to be of more equal power to ministers would be better, I think, as a matter of accountability and improving the independence of committees, which I, I think we have done to some extent, but certainly could go further. But so much also depends upon culture, that we, we can't solely depend upon these rule changes. And so it it matters all the more that individuals are taking upon themselves to exercise that degree of independence and to hold the government, regardless of party, to account in a responsible way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think culture is an equally important part of changing the way parliament works. Obviously, you can't regulate all human behavior uh, through written rules. You have People have to take it upon themselves to realize that they represent a constituency. And you have taken it upon yourself. So I get asked questions quite often of why are you a liberal and have how many times have you, you had to go see the whip? And I say, I, I'm happily still liberal, but I've, yes, I've seen the whip quite a lot. And you probably have had a similar experience. What does it look like from the conservative vantage point? Well, same sort of thing. Uh, there's always pressures to conform to the whip in the conservative caucus. I think the pressures are lighter. Uh, there's less pressure in opposition than in government. And I think the simple reason for that is PMO and the staff that they hire uh, have an immense amount of power and authority to enforce the leader's wishes. You know, when you're in government, there are about 400 PMO and ministerial staff that are all there to support the prime minister and his wishes. Uh, in opposition, there's far fewer staff, and so the whip tends to be lighter. Right. So it's just simply a matter of fewer kids running around telling you what to do. That's exactly it. You know, one, one of the things that actually your listeners will might be interested to hear. I went up for the two emergency sittings to deliberate on the emergency legislation that the government had introduced to, to help Canadians. And what was astounding about those two sittings was that there were no staff on Parliament Hill, no political staff, and very few um, House of Commons administration staff. We had about 30 members up there. I thought to myself, this must have been what Parliament felt like till the 1960s. We were intimately involved with the negotiations on the bill. We were intimately involved in the debate that took place. And we were, as MPs, making decisions, which is a very different, uh, very different from normal. Normally, you've got hundreds of staff running around, organizing uh, these bills, doing the negotiations behind the scenes. And often MPs are brought in at the last minute for their um, buy-in, for their advice. 
but here we were intimately evolved right from the get-go throughout the entire process. Very different from the, this is a bill we're looking to pass, Here, here's your speech, and here are the questions we want you to ask. And oh, by the way, we've written the speech for you, and right. here you go, here's your time slot. That's exactly it. We have, we have a new crop of incoming MPs, and some of whom may well want to add to that culture and exercise a greater degree of independence. I certainly would say to them, write your own speeches, ask your own questions, don't allow yourself to be a mouthpiece, represent your constituents. And this is a, this is a, there's a trustee model to representation that you should take seriously. Uh, is there advice you would give to new MPs along those same lines? Yeah, my advice to them is would be that the constitution that was created in 1867 is one of the foundational documents of our Canadian society. And it has endured for over 150 years because the people who wrote that constitution understood the need for checks and balances on power. And in that constitution of 1867, the word political party, party, caucus does not appear. What does appear is members of parliament, the election of members of parliament. And that when people become members of parliament, when they're elected to be members of parliament, they should always understand their foundational role in our system, which is to represent a certain group of Canadians and to make sure that those voices of the, you know, the diversity of their, within their riding, whether people are poor or rich or downtrodden or well-to-do people who, you know, are immigrants or have been here for generations, that those people need a voice. And you are their only voice on the floor of the House of Commons. And so to never, ever forget that. And if you hold that trust and you keep that faith, that you will be doing your job in continuing uh, the foundations of our society, from which I think all good things have flown. Yes, we run under party banners, and there, there is a responsibility to one's party as a result. But one's ultimate responsibility is, as you say, to our constituency and to our country. And so we see, I think, south of the border, we see some problems in Canada with excessive partisanship, but I think we can see south of the border where that takes us. And Absolutely. Look, you know, in my riding last election, I got about 50% of the vote, but that doesn't mean I just represent 50% of the folks who voted for me. That's just the vote on election day. When the election is over, the very next day, I represent 100% of the people in the riding, even those folks who didn't vote for me. That's the important thing to keep in mind. And the art of politics is to reconcile the differences of opinions within the different groups that you're in the riding that you represent. You know, I'm first and foremost a member of parliament, and that's a role that I hold very uh, near and dear and a role that I take very seriously. And, and secondly, I'm a member of the Conservative Caucus. Um, and I think if MPs think that way, then they'll be carrying out their constitutional function. I was asked on one of the last interviews I did before the pandemic if I, I thought that I had foregone any opportunities by exercising my independence. And I, I don't know what the answer to that really is, because I'm not in a position to give myself those opportunities. But I, I, I'm perfectly comfortable with, having, with the decisions that I've made. And I'm much more comfortable looking back at the decisions I've made to say, we are who we pretend to be. And so we have to be very careful who we pretend to be. But you actually have foregone opportunities in a very direct way. So in 2006, you were a minister and you left voluntarily on a matter of principle. And looking back, are you comfortable with that decision? I would gladly serve in cabinet again if, if asked, but I do not regret the decision I made in 2006 to resign from cabinet over the recognition of Quebec's nationhood. 
I would do that again today if a similar issue came up. You know, I'm opposed to Bill 21. Um, to me, Bill 21 is a, a bad bill that targets uh, minorities in the province of Quebec. It targets uh, observant Sikhs, observant Jews, observant Muslims in that province. And I think it's a terrible bill. Why do I bring that up? Well, I think Bill 21 is the child of the recognition of Quebec's nationhood. And so I have no regrets about my position on that. I believe more than ever that in a society that's increasingly diverse, that all Canadians should be treated equally, regardless of their religious affiliation, their racial backgrounds, uh, their creeds, or any other innate qualities that they might have. So you have to compromise all the time in politics. That's just the reality of trying to get uh, something done with 338 people in a room. But you also have to have lines in the sand that you're not willing to cross, lines based on your principles. And we wouldn't have seen the Reform Act in all likelihood had you not gone through that experience. And you wouldn't be in all likelihood the champion of a more independent and reformed parliament, uh, but for that experience. Do you see when you look at the Reform Act, you say it was quite watered down. I certainly going through the conversation in the most recent debate, I, I wondered if an, if changes to it would have been more helpful to bracket out the the Me Too and the the improper conduct decisions. So allow someone in a leadership position to oust someone for those decisions with proper accountability due process. But I certainly don't want to concern myself too much with that kind of decision. Whereas if it is uh, this person has dissented in a respectful, responsible way, and we don't want that kind of dissent in our party, then I absolutely do want the Reform Act in place to protect my rights and to protect my community's rights. And I wonder if, if, if it would have been possible to bracket that kind of conversation uh, into two separate parts. Well, I think it is possible under the current Reform Act rules. It's up to each caucus to decide whether or not they adopt the written rule in the Parliament of Canada Act. If they choose to reject that rule, they can adopt they can choose to adopt a, a different modified version of that rule that would incorporate the concerns you've just outlined. So, you know, to me, it's an ongoing conversation that caucuses are going to have because after each election, caucuses need to deliberate on these questions. I know in our caucus, we continue to deliberate on this after every election. And I've noticed that there's been a cultural shift on these questions. After the 2015 election, two of the four rules barely passed. They passed with very close votes and caucus. But after four years of having the rule concerning caucus members' expulsions and the rule concerning uh, the election of the caucus chair, after the 2019 election, caucus overwhelmingly implemented uh, and adopted those rules. So it's a cultural shift. I think each caucus is going to go through it. I'm hopeful that in the coming years that caucuses will begin to empower themselves to provide that better check and balance on leader power. It's a useful example too because I, I probably put them into two separate and stark categories when I talked about rules and culture but in fact there's a great interaction between the two uh, over time as well. Apart from independence you are I think known as a conservative who cares about climate change and you in good faith have joined an all-party climate caucus unlike some of your other colleagues who wear I love oil and gas pins when they go to it. In your leadership, you ran on a very forceful climate plan. How do you reconcile that concern? In 2004, you, you disagreed with your party 
and said, I support the Kyoto Protocol. So this is a longstanding disagreement in some ways with party leadership. Do you see your party getting to a more positive place? Or is this, do you see yourself being a lone wolf in some ways on the, on the climate file for the foreseeable future? Well, I see the party coming to the right place on climate change. And I know it will, because I've seen polling data of party members and party members are increasingly concerned about climate change, increasingly concerned about environmental issues. So I'm confident that the party will embrace these issues in the coming years and come forward with conservative-based solutions. I'm an environmentalist because I am part of, there's a big part of my party that believes in environmental con conservation. You know, the root of the word conservative is conserve. And it's not just about conserving our parliamentary traditions, it's also about conserving our natural heritage, our environment. You know, I came of age as a conservative in the 1980s when Brian Mulroney was prime minister. Brian Mulroney was voted the greenest prime minister in Canadian history. And so I come from that part of the party. Now, my party in recent years, I don't think has done a good enough job on issues like climate change and the environment. And that's why I continue to fight for the change within my party. And I'm hopeful and confident that eventually we'll get there. Which is, in some ways, maybe a more useful role. I'm unlikely to change as many conservative minds as you are. And so all the better that you as someone committed to climate change as I am are in that role. And I will have a different role to play in elevating the voice of climate science and changing people's minds. But you will come with greater credibility to a conservative membership. I ran in that leadership race on the issue of climate change and a revenue neutral carbon tax. But I lost that leadership race. And so there's a good example of the interplay between democracy and environmentalism. I decided after I lost that leadership race that I had to respect the democratic wishes of conservative party members. And so, you know, I lost that argument. It doesn't mean I've lost it forever. There'll be other leadership races and other forums where I can make the case for, for conservatives to do better on the environment. But, you know, I think when you lose a leadership race, you have to respect the wishes of the voters. They chose Andrew Scheer in a very different path. We're currently in a leadership race. Candidates are putting ideas out there on the environment, and we have to respect the wishes of uh, of party members and our democratic process. And you will maintain your advocacy, though, for the most conservative way of tackling climate change, the most economically efficient, which is uh, price on pollution? Yeah, I think, I think the most economically efficient way to reduce emissions is a revenue neutral carbon tax. That's been clear in economic research from Nobel Prize winning economists and many other uh, people who've worked in this field. But, you know, at the end of the day, more than being about climate change, Canada is a, a democracy. And in order to achieve uh, outcomes on the environment, we need to bring the population along. We need to convince Canadians of a particular course of action. And so we have to respect the democratic wishes, not only of party members, but also of the Canadian public. You know, I, I say to people, a good example of this is the GST. Economists have been telling us since the early 1970s that we should be cutting income taxes and replacing those revenues with a value-added tax, a GST-type tax that, you know, is around 20%. But there isn't a single politician out there who's going to advocate for a 20% GST, even though it's the best economic way to raise revenues and to, you know, increase prosperity. Because you've got to bring people along. You've got to, you've got to convince Canadians that this is the right course of action. So it's always a balance between what's the most efficient and evidence-based way to proceed with what will politics support? What will the public support? But a credit to you as a result for putting those ideas into a leadership, because I do think you are right, we have to bring people along, but the act of bringing people along demands 
that we as leaders add ideas to the conversation and try to persuade people of what the best evidence really is. And, and so a credit to you, despite a very challenging environment in that leadership race, no doubt, when you had every other candidate on stage attacking the idea of putting a price on pollution and internalizing negative externalities. Why didn't you run again? Well, quite simply, I concluded I couldn't win. <laughs> you know, the first <laughs> fool me once. <laughs> yeah. well, I, it's not to preclude. It's not to preclude running again. You know, I, I might throw my hat in in the next race. It's something I'll deliberate at that time. But you know, the first time you run, it's pretty easy to throw your hat in the ring. You know, you've never run before. I was excited to be able to put my name in the race, put some ideas out there about where I thought the party should go and see where the chips fell. And you know, that's what happened. And I was happy with the race the campaign that I ran and Conservative Party members decided to go down a different path. I think the second time you run, you really have to have a chance of winning. And I looked at the numbers. The previous race had only been two years earlier and the party had not uh, changed enough. The membership had not evolved enough to come over to the direction that I thought we needed to go in. So I didn't think there was any utility in me throwing my hat in the race, you know, mere 24 months after the last race. So I decided to sit this one out. If there's another race in several years, you know, I'll give it a serious look. If the party hasn't selected a leader that is taking us in the direction that I think we need to go. So you have no plans then of walking away from politics. You've been doing this since 2004 and, and you still see this as the vehicle for making the most positive change. Absolutely. I think you've got to keep the pedal to the metal as long as you're in elected office, the moment you decide that you've you've left everything on the field and you've got nothing left to give, that's the moment that I'll exit the stage and, and leave politics. Hopefully uh, at that stage voluntarily and not involuntarily. You've been elected since 2004. I, I don't think your, uh, your job is in any risk at the moment. When it comes to that renewal, I suppose, of the party, do you see age being a factor that young young people signing up for the conservatives that are more concerned about climate or, or are concerned about issues like Bill 21, where there's a clear element of discrimination and that we should be talking about racial equality and we should be talking about religious equality? And is there a return to Brian Mulroney's party by virtue of younger people joining the party? Or, or is that a, a challenge? Well, the, the, part, the Conservative Party has always been a big tent party when it's successful. It has social conservatives, libertarians, environmentalists, fiscal conservatives, populists. It's always been a, a big coalition party, just like the Liberal Party has been. And that's why I think these are the two parties that will always interchanged power in this country because they reflect the diversity of the country. But I think that, you know, the party's going to continue to evolve and it just takes time to bring in new blood, new people. I think we do need to attract younger voters. It's clear that uh, we lost a generation of younger voters in recent years uh, on issues like the environment, you know, on, on various other issues out there. So and to me, uh, the party needs to be renewed. It needs to broaden its its membership. I personally believe that we should take a look at what the Liberal Party did, which is go to a free membership. I think in this day and age when you can join Facebook, Twitter, when you can have a Hotmail or a Gmail account, uh, you know, for free, that requiring people to pay a $15 a year membership is, is old fashioned and redundant and actually discourages people from joining the party. So my view is we should go to a model where membership is free, where membership is permanent, and I think that would broaden the pace of the party, along with you know, renewing our policies to appeal to 
a new generation of, of voters. I know now why you didn't run for leader, but get, as someone who cares so much about parliamentary reform, why didn't you run for speaker? Because the speaker doesn't have a lot of authority anymore. Um, and, and that's the real reason. The speaker has lost a lot of authority in recent years. The recognized parties in the House of Commons have increasingly displaced uh, the authority of the speaker. And so, you know, I felt if I was going to accomplish further reforms to the House of Commons, it would be much easier to do that through the role of an individual member of parliament rather than from the speaker's chair. Like, Such a challenge, though, to decentralize power through a system where the decisions are made largely orchestrated by the centralized sources of power. <laughs> so it, it remains a challenge. Do you write your own questions in question period? I write my own questions. I've Thank always God. Thank God for refused, that. To, uh, <laughs> refused to read the, uh, the rote questions written um, by others. I think it's entirely appropriate for the leadership to say, look, we'd like you to ask a question on this issue today. And then you go back and you craft your own question. Sure. But I think you have to speak with your own voice. You know, I've watched the evolution of parliament over the last 16 years, and I've noticed some things have slipped by the wayside. So for example, when I first started, uh, you could not read, you could not read in the House of Commons, you could not read a speech into the record. You were expected to speak extemporaneously. You could have notes to refer to, to keep track of where, you know, your thoughts, but you were not to read a speech. And the rule was still enforced at that time. I remember Speaker Milliken on occasion would get up and admonish uh, a member for reading their speech and ask them to speak extemporaneously. But by 2006, that had fallen by the wayside, and now members regularly read speeches into the record. And I, I think the challenge there is then that it's, it's a small step from reading a speech into the record into reading someone else's speech into the record that you haven't written. It's amazing, though, how quickly these things happen, because coming into Parliament in 2015, so orchestrated behind the scenes in a way that I never fully appreciated, it wasn't always that way. And it wasn't that long ago that it was not that way. That's exactly right. I think you have to speak in your own voice. I frankly think that's a lot more powerful. I think it's more authentic. I think people respond to that in a much bigger way than just reading some rote speech or question into the record. If there's anything I learned from this last election, it's that people want that sense of authenticity and they want that sense of independence. And they, they still want, if they're a liberal, they want you to still support the platform promises if you're, you're a conservative voter the same. But I think conservative and liberal voters overall, they don't want us to go to Parliament and spew the talking points and ignore the questions. I think there's a fairly universal desire for a greater degree of independence in our parliament. I think so. And I think that that is consistent with hundreds of years of Canadian parliamentary tradition. Like this idea that, you know, we're broken up into four teams in the House of Commons and that we all have to have a disciplined singular message is a is a recent phenomenon of the last two, three decades. And we often uh, talk about diversity in this country and how important it is. You know, it's a, we have great racial diversity, great cultural diversity, two official languages, great uh, regional diversity. But what's equally important is the diversity of viewpoints. And often I find that the way the parliament is set up is it suppresses that diversity of viewpoints in favor of this kind of rigid party discipline point of view that essentially allows for four viewpoints on the floor of the House of Commons rather than you know, a, a much greater diversity of viewpoints. Diversity of views is is something we should certainly embrace. I think 
we should also speak more in politics about integrity. At the end of the day, I believe strongly that the most important invention in our society is parliament. And in other societies, it goes by different names. In the U.S. Uh, Republican system, it's called Congress. And uh, in the French system, it's called l'Assemblée Nationale. And in Britain, they call it Westminster, and so on and so forth. But the point is, the most important thing I think we as uh, we have invented is these democratic systems of checks and balances on power. The idea that power doesn't rest in any one person or any one office, but it rests in several different areas, some of which is democratically elected. And I think if we can continue to renew that democratic system of checks and balances in this 21st century, I'm positive that our kids and grandkids will inherit uh, societies that are prosperous, that have justice, that have good environmental outcomes, that have the whole range of uh, good things that the good life entails. You know, democracies can be infuriatingly uh, difficult to deal with in the short term. Just look at the debates we're having on climate change and, you know, the false starts on action on various issues. You know, you often look at non-democratic systems and think, well, man, they can really accomplish a lot in a very short amount of time. But I think history demonstrates that as difficult as democratic systems can be, in the long run, they've produced the best outcomes. I think it's important to, to say two things to that. One is, without question, we need to Im improve and, and strengthen. And the second piece, when you look around the world, is also to say, if the Conservative par Party can accommodate you in the leadership race, and the Liberal Party can accommodate me and, and others in disagreeing on, on a range of different issues, then we, are, we have a fairly strong starting point from which to strengthen. And, you know, it's about participating in the debates. It's not about, obviously, you want to win the debate, but that's not always possible in a democracy. Sometimes you lose and debates. Not, yeah, and you don't always win them right away. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, a good example of that, you know, people ask me, well, why do you stay in the party because you lost the debate on a revenue-neutral carbon tax? And I said to them, John Crosby, up till 1987, 88, the Conservative Party was resolutely anti-free trade. It was the party of John A. Macdonald and the national policy and the huge tariff wall that we put up around this country, barring American imports. John Crosby, in the 1983 leadership race, challenged that orthodoxy and said, I'm running for Conservative leader, and I believe in free trade, and I think the Conservatives need to be be the party of free trade, and we need a free trade agreement with the United States. Now, he lost that leadership race. However, a mere five years later, in 1988, Brown Mulroney, who was leader, decided to embrace John Crosby's policy in that leadership race, campaign on free trade in 1988, and it's been conservative policy ever since. So there's an example of a role that John Crosby played, that I, I currently play in the party, and you know, that's why you have to stay in your party and why you have to fight those good fights. I have constituents who are probably Michael Chong voters. They're, they're, they're fiscal conservative. They care about science. They care about evidence. They don't like all of the spending that they see out of our government over the last four, year, four or five years, but they don't have a home. And so if there aren't politicians in the conservative party to make space for them as voters, then they will vote for me every time because they they look and they say, well, what are my options? Yeah, I think the vast majority of Canadians are, you know, fiscally prudent and uh, socially progressive. You know, they believe in 
treating others equally and ensuring that everybody is is able to live the good life without fear of being discriminated against. And I think that's the foundation of much of our politics and why we've been so successful. Well, I appreciate your time and I certainly appreciate your advocacy over the last number of years. I had a colleague say to me when I was disagreeing at, at some point in the last parliament that while they didn't agree with me on that particular issue, they were appreciative of it because it helped open up space for when they were going to disagree on an issue down the road. And I feel the same way regardless of party. I think the more that we have people stand up and act the way they want parliament to be today, even if we don't have all the rules that we want to see, we can start to change that culture. I, I really value your actions on that front as well. So, so thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Michael as well for taking the time. For future episodes, again, remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca. And if you have suggestions for guests or topics, reach out on social media at BEY News.